My conversation today is with Dr. Stephen Skinner, one of the most accomplished and acclaimed authors, editors, lecturers, and practitioners on and of the Western esoteric traditions for decades. To those versed in even a cursory glance of magic and the occult, Dr. Skinner requires no introduction. We sat down to discuss the growing contemporary interest in grimoire magic, his start in the practice of feng shui, prerequisites for spirit evocation, the birth of chaos magic, and the ever-popular Alistair Crowley. It was my great privilege to speak with Dr. Skinner, and I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. Well, uh, my first experience was really practical in Hong Kong. I was uh, staying with a friend of mine uh, who is actually a barrister out there. He's Chinese. And his business was not doing very well. So I joked with him and I said, oh, why don't we go up Temple Street and find a feng shui master and fix your business? And he, he's Harvard educated and really westernized. And so he said, you're pissing with me, aren't you? That's... That's not something I want to do. And I said, John, how's your business doing? And he, okay. So we went up Temple Street. We found a really old master and uh, we took him back to, to John's office. And he did a detail, which I now know to be a detailed and accurate uh, analysis. And he wrote out four pages in Chinese uh, for John, uh, which I've still got because John wasn't interested initially. And uh, he forced John to move out of his nice flash corner office with a harbor view. And he said, you have to move into this room. And he points to the photocopying room. And John's, and you have to move these plants and you have to close this door. And you have to give your secretary a nice harbor view. And he said, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so... I said, hey, John, you know, suffer a little bit of indignity and just let's see if this works. Well, 10 days later, he got a, a, a part of a big police corruption trial, which he was never expecting. <clears throat> Three months later, he was earning so much that he had to find a new office. And I said, John, when you move, get the same feng shui man to do the analysis, which he did. <laughs> And, and the rest is history. Um, wow. But uh, so I started, um, I started going out in, in the Wan Chai um, bars with this old guy drinking brandy. I, I don't drink anymore, but in those days I did. And one night he got very, very drunk and he was sort of leaning on me. And I said, oh, what's bugging you? He said, the thing I most hate about it in the whole world is Western architects. And I said, why? He said, well, I do the analysis. I, I peg the ground where the entrance has got to be, where the water's got to be. I do the stuff properly. And these buggers come along um, with bulldozers and knock over all the pegs and then do exactly the opposite. And it doesn't look good. So because I was a geography lecturer initially, I know how to, to read maps. I know how, how to use a plane table and that sort of thing. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll do your deal. You let me um, come to your next client meeting and uh, demand a copy of the plans. And then we'll go away and I will mark on those architect plans where your stuff should be. It's all right. You put the pegs in the ground already. <clears throat> but you know they're not going to stay there, so let's put it on paper. And then we go back and see your client and tell him this is what's got to be done. And um, we did that. And the client, being Chinese, of course, said, oh, yeah, tell the architect off. This is what you've got to do, mate. And um, so it worked. And that building actually earned the, earned the client a lot of money, so he was happy. And I said, look, uh, I'll do this for you every time on condition you teach me feng shui because I could see that he was, he was the real deal. He wasn't some Westernized Chinese who'd read it out of books. Um, 
And so that's where I learned my feng shui initially in, uh, in Hong Kong on the island way back in the early 70s. And, and so then I knew, I knew the thing worked, and um, so I stuck with it. Uh, so that's, that's the other strand to my interest. But my first love was um, magic. Uh, my first love was uh, doing, evoking spirits and doing magic properly. Not, not new age, um, I want this, I want that stuff, but actually being very specific. So there you go. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful story. <laughs> um, yeah. So, do do uh, at the current moment does does any of the the stuff that you have learned about feng shui inform uh, your magical practice? Uh, you know, I, I would assume that these are things that are are, are lifetime endeavors for you. No, the short answer is no. There's no real connection between feng shui and magic, and I can say that with certainty because I, I've spent a lot of time on both subjects. Feng shui changes the environment and improves your luck. It is, as somebody once said, a form of luck engineering. And the Chinese, they believe that luck is like a commodity. You can earn it, you can accumulate it, or you can throw it away, which a lot of people do. Um Hmm. Whereas magic is specifically dealing with particular spirits to get particular answers or particular advantages. So these are about as unconnected as chemistry and physics. Inter interesting. Um, there's actually, uh, I mean, I, I do understand that you are a great proponent of the objective existence of spirits, uh, in particularly, you know, in, in the work of magic. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I definitely have. There's there's this sort of, I don't want to say rising popularity, but perhaps a reemergence of grimoire uh, magic, those kinds of uh, workings in, to some degree, in, in, in pop culture uh, right now. You know, magic obviously is something more and more people are engaging in, uh, for better or for worse. Um, and, you know, it, it's just so easily... I guess it's so readily available with the advent of things like Reddit and and uh, just people sharing their experiences in real time, not having to go through you know uh, the vetting process of publishing a book or any kind of um, uh, incubation process for those things. How do you feel about that? About uh, I guess more and more people working with these spirits. Well, um, pleased and displeased. Um, pleased because I was probably instrumental in introducing a lot of this material to, to the West. Uh, the, the Chinese, by the way, they, they accept magic as part of life, and uh, those people who are expert in it will hang their shingle outside their office, and people know that's where you go if you want certain things done. Um, but in the West... The whole 20th century has um, been materialistic and not interested or not, yeah, not interested in magic. And then the latter half of the 20th century, um, we got very much new age magic. Yeah, I don't even have to tell you what that's all about. But um, a lot of these, these gurus and it, that sort of stuff is, is good to get you uh, encouraged and focused and get you doing things. So, yes, in that sense, it works. It works at a psychological level. But it can't do the things which anybody living in the 19th or 18th century would really think was magic. They go, oh, you, you just cheered up and you worked better. Um, but there's nothing magical about what you've just done. So, fortunately, that's coming back. Uh, and then on the negative side, um, again, you get people trying to popularize it. So you see sigils from the, the Goetia on people's shirts and places like that. I mean, these, these are specific items to make specific connections. Wearing it on your shirt, of course, won't work. But uh, it, it makes my toes curl a little bit to see things like that. So, yes, good and bad. Uh, and I have to say, I think that Harry Potter has done quite a lot to getting at least one generation 
interested in the possibility that maybe magic is real. Now, for myself, I've seen its effects so many times that I have absolutely no doubt that it's real. Um, and uh, you probably heard some of my podcasts where I've um, foolishly uh, outlined some of the things that I've seen and done. But, um, yeah, so that's good and that's bad. Um, now, some work is happening at the moment where people who are much more academically and scientifically minded are actually thinking that maybe they should actually try it out, which is good. Uh, if they do it right, it's good. Um, because before that, academics uh, took the view, well, it's, it's rubbish and it doesn't work, so we can say anything about it. Uh, to give you a concrete example, the, the earliest detailed magical texts of the Greek magical papyri, I did them for my PhD, and I went to the painful extent of learning classical, well, Cohen uh, Greek, um, by God, I can tell you, that was hard work. Um, but they, they said I needed to do that before I could even begin my PhD. So I did. I did Latin at school. So, so that gave me access to these. And I looked at the Greek and I looked at the transaction, translations. And the Greek is deliberately what the Greeks call a techni, uh, a technical text. And so there are 30 plus names for different sorts of magic, different techniques. And uh, almost all of them are translated by modern translators as either spell or charm. So the charm does this, the spell does that. But you can't actually figure out what it is if you don't know that you're talking about 30 or 40 different, different techniques. So I deconstructed that and worked out um, what they're actually talking about. So that was, that was um, three or four years of hard work. But um, before that, I came across the grimoires. Uh, grimoires are not um, religious documents. They're not social documents. They're not historical documents. They are the notebooks of practicing magicians. Like, here is the list of spirits I called, and here's some of the results, and this is what I did. And these were meant to be private documents. Uh, they, they were not meant to be published. So I feel I've been a bit of a naughty boy in uh, publishing them. But I thought this, this is the only way that people are going to realize that it's a, it's a detailed set of techniques. And it's like any chemistry experiment. If you do every step correctly, nine times out of 10, and I can guarantee that number, it works. If you mess it up and say, oh, I can't find, um, I can't find a snake skin, so I'm not going to do that. I'll put a bit of plastic in instead. And then you shouldn't be surprised if nothing happens. So um, it's hard work, particularly as um, what these documents talk about is stuff that was common in the Middle Ages, but is very uncommon now. So, um, yeah. Hope that answers that question. Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that's one of the things that I, I I find myself having to remind uh, a lot of modern practitioners. Um, just having to be in, um, uh, perhaps the uh, unenviable position of being somebody who runs a Hermetic Order, the Golden Dawn Temple here. Um, I find myself in, in the position of, uh, I guess, talking to or, or attempting to guide young practitioners or, or uh, early practitioners in, in their work. And, you know, you can't be surprised that you don't get what they got if you didn't do what they did what they for did. some <laughs> yeah, for, for, for some reason there's this there's this weird idea where it's like you know uh no i can just swap things out and i think that's a big part of our of our just like commoditized um spiritually eclectic uh type of uh society that we're living in but yeah. um uh, one of the things that i find um that appears with certain types of uh grimoire magic or the magic of evocation and please you know uh, 
correct me if I am wrong. No, I, no you're absolutely right with your terminology there. But um, there is a particular admonition to, I guess, in in the you know I, archaic vernacular to purity. I guess you would call it a, a relatively high degree of some kind of spiritual development mm-hmm. as as a prerequisite to begin to petition or obligate these spirits to do work for you. I mean, in your experience, does does that hold true? Yes. Let me, let me draw a parallel. Um, people who know how to uh, train horses or who are prepared to catch a wild horse, subdue it and train it, are pretty rare. If you put the average bloke out of the street in New York uh, in a paddock with a wild horse, um, he would uh, he would be um, in trouble. Uh, friends of mine have been seriously kicked in the ribs by such uh, wild horses, um, hospitalized as a result of that. Um, so I know that there are certain secrets in actually talking to a horse and getting it to work. And um, one of my early friends had a rather rather vicious father. And he thought he'd, he'd just check what sort of a guy I was. And so he handed me a, um, a harness and said, can you go and put this harness on that horse and paddock over there? And, and here, take some sugar with you. So I'd never done that before. So I went and talked to the horse for quite a while before, before feeding him. And then gradually slipping the harness over. And that was just intuitively what I thought I should do. And it worked. And I walked back with the horse and harness and the, the father of my friend was, yeah, I suppose, a little bit impressed. But talking to spirits is a little bit like that. In most cases, the spirit will say to itself, what's your authority? How, how do you think you're going to tell me? That's assuming it even turns up. And to get a spirit to turn up, sometimes you have to run the evocations again and again and again. And frankly, a lot of modern, uh, quote, practitioners, unquote, do it once, sit there, nothing came, um, go and watch television. Uh, And you can't. It's hard work and you've got to do it properly. And I think I was lucky because the first time I did it, I repeated the evocation twice and I got a result. But um, I'm going to put that down to beginner's luck. But that result was so visual that I never had any doubt about the reality of spirits after that. Um, I think I've probably mentioned it on previous podcasts, but it was a bright orange face about the size of my fist at about the level of my face, and it had teeth, and it was gnashing its teeth at me. didn't say anything, but I was freaked, (laughs) and I vanished and left. Um, But anyway... So after that, I had no doubt about these things. But if you don't do it properly, nothing will turn up. And people, most people give up magic because of boredom. And the other ones give up because they haven't observed all of the requirements. And um, academics writing about magic um, have seldom actually experienced it themselves. And so they're talking from sociology or history or whatever. And my, um, my father-in-law, my, my wife's father, uh, is a retired professor of chemistry. And when I chat to him about this, because he was fairly skeptical about it, but after I explained it to him, he said, geez, these guys don't seem as if they've ever touched a, a test tube, and yet they're prating on about how magic works. Well, you can't. It's a practice. You've got to do it, and you've got to do it right. And once you've done it right, You can then go back and do it again with a different spirit for a different reason and so on. And it will work nine times out of ten. And the tenth time, I'm not sure why it didn't work, but that does happen. Um, Yeah. yeah. Perhaps, uh, I don't know, maybe something astrological. Who knows? Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's possible possible uh <laughs> but, um so what it, being someone as, as well versed in this stuff as as you are uh from a practical practical level which yes is is absolutely it's sorely missing right the the attributes that one would need in terms of perseverance and and uh and kind of a a general 
understanding of what they're doing. Um, do you think magic, I guess, in pop culture, has it always been that way? I know there was the new age and stuff like that, but even, even before the new age, you know, let's, let's say when all the golden dawn stuff was coming out with, uh, you know, R.A. Gilbert and the stuff that, that, that yourself and, and Francis King were putting out. Do you, um, do you think it's, it, it's similar to the way that it was in pop? Has it always been kind of a little bit of a lazy aesthetic sort of thing or, or has it, has it changed in a, in a, in a different way in, in your experience? Well, I don't think I'm answering your question exactly, but the, the culture changed around about the time of the golden dawn before that, if you'd asked an average guy on the street, uh, do you believe in spirits? Uh, they'd probably say yes in a Christian culture and definitely in a Muslim culture. Um, but when the 20th century got running, it then became unacceptable to say that you believed in spirits. And the Golden Dawn was, is on the cusp of that. And so the Golden Dawn actually did three different things. Uh, the first thing it did, which was good, was it um, had a structure and, and people were admitted only if they were acceptable and at least looked as if they might have the determination to carry on. Uh, and they were had secrecy imposed on them, which is um, a very useful thing. Secondarily, there was the, the spiritual side of the Golden Dawn, which was the initiations, Sometimes those initiations took, and sometimes they would just be a walking around the temple <clears throat> responding in a sort of Freemasonic way. But um, the guys running those, if they were doing the visualizations and things correctly, could actually bring that, the candidate forward or upwards in terms of spirituality. Uh, and then there's all the medieval stuff like geomancy and tarot and so forth, which I love. I think it's fascinating. Uh, and then there's evocation, because Golden Dawn initiation per se doesn't deal with spirits or demons or anything else like that. It's to do with your personal spiritual um, elevation. And when you think about it, Mathers only introduced a few people to evocation. He was very much into the grimoires himself because he published a few. Uh, Key of Solomon, and he also did the, the scholastic work on the Goetia, which Crowley then stole from 33 Bly Street and published under his own name with um, suitable insults to Mathers. Uh, I can't understand why he did that, um, but I think it's Crowley's ego. Uh, Crowley himself used a lot of other people's works like his original 777 was actually not his work it was from the gd uh goisha is definitely not his work and the stuff that he put in the front of the goisha just has no place there yeah it should not be there uh he did good stuff with tara that is true uh, as a side note um i was responsible for doing the final color photographs of the of the tarot in, in the Warburg, which is just as well because the Warburg wow. hasn't looked after them and they're now in a much worse state than they used to be. I got in a professional photographer because I was in publishing at the time and had him do the photographs and spend an entire day <clears throat> leaning on him, making his life difficult, but we got a great set of, of photographs and um, a few others. And then the Warburg said, Oh, we're never going to let anybody else do that again. But I think they allowed a, a German guy to later photograph them again. But the, the classical colored ones that we've all seen and loved were ones that I organized. So that side of the Golden Dawn I was uh, au fait with. But when Mathis was teaching evocation, he only took selective pupils because you can't bring a classroom of 33 or something into the, into the temple and, and do that. Now, your original question was, what about all this purity stuff? And that is, that is key because uh, probably in the late 19th century and 20th century, people thought about magic as dirty stuff that you... Um, I, I can't think of suitable fictions that explain, oh, yeah, reading Dennis Wheatley 
people like Makata um, were not seen as very spiritual. But it is necessary to be um, physically, uh, emotionally, and to a lesser extent spiritually clean when working with spirits. The most important of those is physically clean. Um, the ancient Egyptians went to the extent of shaving every bit of body hair off. Now, you and I wow. wear good beards, and I'm not going to sacrifice my beard. No way. <laughs> um, but but um, then, then they washed and cleaned themselves, and they made sure that they had not eaten garlic before, which is a, a concern. You don't want to have bad breath because the spirits will actually um, – not come. They wow. like cleanliness, and uh, this is a strange thing, but uh, it's true. So there's various other regulations and things which are mentioned in passing. Um, by the time they got round to the medieval grimoires, they didn't bother to mention these because priests, who were the people who did most of the evocation back in those days, right, had access to bars and uh, were relatively um, and. The key thing is the smell. That is absolutely essential. So the reason for incenses is not to have clouds and clouds of smoke in which um, something can manifest, because they don't manifest in a cloud of smoke. Um, the key thing is to have the right um, aromas which will attract that specific spirit. Now, the spirit coming from, let's just call it the other world, to this world, finds it as difficult as you and I would working under sea without protection. You know, they, they don't actually have to hold their breath, but they do not find the physical world comfortable. But if there's an aroma in the air which is um, consistent with uh, what they like, then that works much better. So the last thing they want to do is smell bad breath and stinky, uh, stinky smells. So people just look at me thinking, is he crazy when I say that that's important? But it is actually one of the, the keys that everybody knows that incense is necessary for evocation. And the other thing they don't know is that the right sort of incense is necessary for evocation. Yeah. And purity is necessary. But you don't, I won't say you don't have to be spiritually pure because um, nobody would agree on what spiritually pure means these days. But um, one needs to be um, emotionally pure, no anger. One needs to be, can, can, uh, you know, really deliberate about what you're doing. These, these evocations, I see people rattling through them. Let's get this done as fast as possible. No. You must go through them slowly with the, the, the tread of an elephant. Not quite, but you know what I mean. And enunciate every single word because these words are part of the magic um, this is magic without quotation marks um, and you do it deliberately it's like talking to that horse i talked to it for quite a long time in um, what i hoped was a convincing tone of voice and managed to get it to submit to me although you know, so I was just lucky. But the spirits are the same. You need to use a particular voice when evoking them. And you need to do it deliberately and with total certainty that they're going to come. Um, my first experience is when I was very young. I had total certainty because I was only 16. And I didn't have any reason to doubt it. Everybody knows spirits are real, aren't they? And so I had total certainty. Whereas the modern, um, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it, new ages, really don't have total certainty about this. So you need the correct physical conditions. You need the correct mental conditions. doesn't really have to be the correct spiritual conditions. And you need to be clean and pure on the physical plane. And then then it's much easier for the spirits because otherwise it's hard for the spirits and you don't want to make it hard for them. Uh, sorry, does that answer the question? Yeah, that was, this is, uh, that was fascinating actually. Um, I, I'm, and I'm glad that you, that you mentioned that piece about uh, cleanliness. It's, I feel like I, I do a lot of finger waving 
you know, telling <laughs> telling people that you have you have to keep you know uh, the, the the space that you're working in clean. Everything it's it's got to be in. Um, I don't I don't know where that really comes from for me. I guess it was something I just sort of intuited because I've never I, I can't remember reading it anywhere. Um, but it's it's good to have that affirmation. <laughs> most most of the grimoires do mention. Um, uh, what do they call it? Consecration. Um, they use uh, even Christian formulas for that, and, and that's good. And uh, what's the old expression? Cleanliness is close to godliness. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I never took seriously until I realized where it fits in. Yeah, I um, I, and I'm glad also you mentioned uh, a bit of your your work on on Crowley's stuff. Uh, I know that you you edited several of his works. That that's correct, right? In, in the, I guess seventies, yeah, way way back in the early seventies, I uh, edited his book on astrology. Then Simons and Grant came and produced a slightly larger version of the same, um, and I edited uh, his diaries uh, after he'd left um, Italy, kicked out by Mussolini. He wow. went across the, the shortest uh, stretch of water and uh, set up in Tunis. Uh, so I edited his Tunisian diaries. Um, there's still secondhand copies of it around, but uh, I'm surprised that nobody has redone that. But anyway, uh, because, you know, Crowley was still the person who did, did the most for magic in the 20th century. He did the publicity. He certainly did that very well. Um, he scandalized everybody, but it meant that he went down in history. And uh, he, he's probably got more uh, biographies written about him than anybody else I can think of from the 20th century. Um, six, nine, some huge number. And one of the those biographies, uh, I mean, it's probably Kaczynski's stuff is, is considered to be the more detailed now. But one of the biographies, which I thought was um, had a lighter touch, was Francis King's. And I'm, I'm a bit shocked to see that Francis, who I knew very well, we, we used to um, uh, eat dinner quite often. Um, uh, most of his books have gone out of print, which is very sad because uh, you're obviously aware of him, some of the history of the early Golden Dawn. Mm -hmm. At one stage, I thought of extending that and bringing it into the 21st century, um, telling stories about the people involved, but uh, it didn't go down, so I didn't do it. And there's always too much to do. I have a, a list of things. You asked me what's my, my present um, plans. Um, my list is hanging on the wall here, and there's 27 <laughs> items on it. Wow. which could turn into 27 books, but I'm not going to have enough time to do that. So uh, I'll just pick one or two at the moment. I uh, haven't really produced much for the last two years. My, my excuse is it's too damn cold in London, but um, <laughs> most people won't wear that excuse. Yeah. So perhaps I'm so just getting lazy. Do you, do you think, um, well, firstly, let me say, uh, you know, I personally, I can speak for myself. I greatly look forward to to any work that you do put out, uh, any forthcoming work uh, by you. you. So, so that's that is. I mean, that you know, not to not to fanboy out here a little bit, but I, um, I gotta say it's 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 quite it's quite an honor to speak with you. Just because, I mean, really, you're one of the first names that people encounter when they come to the Western esoteric tradition in any digestible format. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know that that it's a tremendous service. I think, but uh, you know, you speaking about Crowley and and him sort of leaving his mark, uh, and and being very present in the, uh, I guess the the literary artifacts of the twentieth century. You know, do you think because he never really left popular culture? He's he's been in music for years. Very obviously, it's it's very easy to to hang on to these people when they're so controversial, um, but. You, you know, he's kind of experiencing, uh, I guess I would, I would say from what I've seen with my eyes, he's more popular now than ever in, in, in oh, yeah. uh, mag magical societies. You think that has something to do with it? The fact that so much of his work ended up being um, preserved and, and so much was said about him. 
Well, several several things. First of all, he was completely outrageous. Um, he's the sort of guy who would go to dinner with 12 people and then at the end he'd offer to pay and he'd pull out what they had in those days, a 100-pound note, which the restaurant, of course, couldn't cash, and so everybody else would pay for their meal. You know, he was a, he was a bit of a bounder that way. Um, but uh, he's also been inserted, as you say, into modern music. I mean, Jimmy Page is the, the obvious example. So at one stage, I used to compete with Jimmy on the auction floor, um, buying Crowley first editions. Jimmy, of course, had a much bigger budget, and so mostly I didn't win. But um, we got together, and at one stage, we were thinking of starting a publishing company to republish Crowley's stuff. This is before the OTO got in there and grabbed the whole pie. And I'll talk about that later if you want. Um, but uh, uh, that didn't turn out. But um, he set up a, a bookshop, the Equinox, in uh, where was it? In uh, Kensington High Street, and um, which was uh, run by a strange guy called Eric Hill. Um, Eric wanted to emulate everything that Crowley ever did. So in the corner of the bookshop, there was mountain climbing crampons. And I'm sure Eric was doing the same uh, drugs, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, um, so Jimmy was selling and uh, buying Crowley books at that stage. And he, of course, bought Boleskine, um, which uh, is now under different ownership. Sadly, some crazy Christians attempted to burn it down twice, which is a bit sad because it was a... Wow. Uh, and did you not know that? I did not. I had no idea. Ah, uh, well... Uh, Crowley sold it back in the early part of the 20th century, which um, if I was Crowley, that would have upset me because it was a nice place. Um, and then uh, it was later sold, I don't know, in the 60s and 70s. And some local Christians got in there and burned it down. <clears throat> so the re restoration work started under the present, uh, I don't know, this present owner. They came and burned it down again. Um, which is just outrageous. So now serious money is being spent on putting it back together. But of course, you can't bring back whatever magic was done there if you've, if you've burned the place. That's, that's all gone. It'll, it'll become a, a tourist item. Um, people will go there and stay over and, and so forth, which is, which is fun. But um, yeah. Crowley originally bought it so he could do the Abramillan operation, and he, he set up the... Uh, the what is it? Uh, well, the temple and the um, area with sand on the floor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he only did two or three operations. Then he had the new thrill of, of um, marrying a new wife, um, uh, Kelly's um, is it Kelly's sister. Yeah, Kelly's sister. And then, of course, he had to have a, um, a honeymoon, so he took around uh, Asia and uh, and to Egypt. And, of course, from a Crowleyan point of view, that was the most significant because <clears throat> it was there that he did um, the Thelemic thing and got the reception of the, the three books, um, which are now core to Thelemic religion. I, I don't know whether it should be called a religion, but... Um, uh, in some ways, it's treated like that now. So now I've lost the thread. What were we talking about? Uh, Crowley, uh, oh, yeah, music. So he, through Jimmy Page, he got well-known. And uh, uh, then people kept publishing new biographies, etc., etc. And uh, sadly, not many of his works have been republished in the last 10 or 15 years, and that's because uh, the OTO keeps a an iron hand on the activity of people publishing Crowley, which is sad because uh, a lot of the stuff would have been published if they hadn't have done that. Um, but I'll say no more. Uh, and and no, he was a dramatic character. I mean, he, he was vivid. And there are not enough vivid people in this world. Um, so um, yeah, there, there's definitely something. There's definitely something charming about his eccentricities uh, to a degree. Um, they they kind of 
I think a lot of people's ab reaction to to spiritual stuff is this kind of whitewashing of the personality, the persona, which can come across as disconnected. And, and at some, at, uh, there's some flavor of condescension in there. And it can be refreshing to see somebody, um, you know, reflecting their own humanness back. Now, Crowley had quite a bit of humanness to, <laughs> to him, you know, uh, <laughs> deeply, deeply eccentric uh, uh, or eccentric and, and, sometimes i guess disturbed person but uh, you know he's definitely got the personality whereas somebody like mathers you even though he didn't really leave a lot of his own opinion because you know there's golden dawn order papers which were never intended to be made public um which i think crowley made public first right with his lawsuits and and uh, and publishing certain things in the equinox by by appropriation yes. like like you were saying but uh you know, Mathers is not not as he's mysterious, but his personality uh, is not not like uh, Crowley's. Very, very, I, I like he's just the grandchild. You know, he's he's very cantankerous, and there's something kind of I think uh, charming about about him. But then you have this, you have this, um, and I don't know that they're related, really, like on a historical academic level, but they seem to be conflated to some degree in the in the in the the popular dialogue at this point, you know, this, this emergence of chaos magic, which I guess uh, came through Peter Carroll, but I, I believe Austin Osmond Spar did he, I think he had some okay, influence can I, on Crowley. Can I, can I stop you there? Please. You've asked a lot of questions. Please. Yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Mathis is not as colorless as you think he was. Um, he was crazy about the uh, Jacobin, um, Scottish uh, stuff, which is why he adopted the McGregor. Uh, he did uh, public rituals in Paris. And uh, at the time, um, he obviously didn't have Crowley's skill in um, being recognized and um, written up in the newspapers. But he was still quite a strong character. And what you've got to hand it to him is that he actually did most of the work for the Golden Dawn. The, the digging through the stuff, the bringing it all together. Um, Westcott did all the Masonic, you know, you stand there, you do this, you do that. Um, and he also contributed a small problem, but never mind. Um, but yeah, the Golden Dawn would have been, wouldn't have existed nearly in the same form if it hadn't been for Mathers. And then Crowley went to Mathers in Paris to get his final degree because the guys in the, or the girl in London wouldn't give it to him because he was a disreputable person, right. which undoubtedly was a disreputable person. But um, <laughs> we're not talking about great spirituality. I don't think anybody would have conflated Crowley with uh, an Indian guru. Um, and there were other Western gurus around, like Gurdjieff. He was also a bit of a bad boy. He... Um, he actually bought a, or somebody bought for him, a uh, chateau in northern France, which was not very far from the chateau that I used to own. And he'd drive around the, um, the back streets in a fast car with absolute disregard of human life. Um, I don't know whether he actually killed anybody, but he almost killed himself several times in, in road accidents. And he was also very tough on his students. And Crowley had the same attitude, you know, cut your forearm, go and sit up on the top of the hill, um, drink bad water, whatever. Um, and both of them wanted to shock their students out of mediocrity and get them to, to do something else. But I'm not sure about the effectiveness of that. Uh, that kind of spirituality I have never actually been involved in. Anyway, um, yes, one of the things that Westcott did was overrule um, Mathers on the question of the attribution of the wand to air or the wand to fire uh, and the dagger to air or the dagger to fire. And so the, the common view now is the reverse of what Mathers did initially because Mathers took his stuff from the grimoires. Uh, I, kinda, I don't know what Westcott's rationale was. But that's just a, a minor irk. So, um, 
Yeah, so if you talk about um, the Golden Dawn in terms of spirituality as found in, say, Indian mystics, it doesn't wash. Um, Mathis certainly wasn't spiritual like that, and Crowley certainly, certainly wasn't spiritual. But you don't need that kind of spirituality to do magic. Magic's a technique. Uh, magic, um, as the Greeks said, it's a technique. So what, what are your thoughts on, uh, on, on, I guess, chaos magic at, at this point? Uh, again, it's, oh. it's, well, it's can, definitely carving out bit, space. A little bit about chaos magic. Um, this, this is a claim that um, maybe Pete Carroll wouldn't agree with, but chaos magic had its uh, birth, um, where was it, up in the Midlands uh, with Ray Sherwin and people like that. But it also had its birth in my back, um, my back dining room. And why do I say that? Well, really, back, back in the seventies, um, I had a big old house in Chiswick, and uh, I decided, what can I do to push magic forward? And so I founded the Illuminist Club not claiming to be part of the Illuminati, but just a nice little joke, the Illuminist Club, and got some of my friends to come around um, on a Saturday night and drink homemade wine, um, which wasn't too bad. And uh, then I decided to bring in people to talk. So I, I invited Gerald Goff, I invited um, Colin Wilson, I invited um, Francis King. These are all personal friends of the early 70s but they were fairly big names at the time. And so we got crowds. So I opened up the whole of the ground floor of my house and we made um, this Illuminous Club and then people got free wine afterwards. They paid to come in. And when our biggest crowd was with Colin Wilson and the queue outside the front door was alarming the, the locals. So it was middle summer, fortunately. So what I did was open the front windows and they stood in the garden and listened to it, which is a bit much. But the conversations that went on after the Illuminous Club meetings happened in my back room, uh, it was a back dining room. And amongst those conversations was Pete Carroll talking to various people like um, Suster, et cetera. Um, and this is where the idea of chaos magic began, like, do we really need to do all this stuff? No, we don't, blah, blah, blah. So that's my little historical um, eye on this. But in that's truth, excellent. I never got very much into chaos magic. Um, I'm a traditionalist, I like the traditional stuff. Um, and chaos magic, um, I didn't really, so I can't really make a decent comment about it. Yeah. That's an excellent story. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, you sort of. I'm sort of reeling at the uh, the historical personages that uh, were at your your dinner parties. That's that's an excellent story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, <clears throat> so I, I usually have a a, a few quest stock questions that I ask everybody that comes on. Um, and one of them is so, uh, and I think you'd be very well poised uh, to to give some guidance here for anybody that might be listening to this at any point And have heard a few of the things that you and I have spoken about today. Uh, do you have any recommendations for starting points? Now that, I guess that could be, um, you know, topics to study, perhaps a book or two, or, or even a, a YouTube channel, something like that. Okay. Because I'm traditional, I always think in terms of books for starting points, YouTube Great. channels, um, yeah, I'd have to ask somebody else. But um, well, one of my first ones was Techniques of High Magic, which I wrote jointly with Francis King. Um, that, that's another story in its own right. But uh, we sampled various things, like there was the Yi Jing in there, which I know is not Western magic, and there was geomancy in there, which nobody had ever talked about uh, in the 70s and this tarot, and then I stuck in one chapter on evocation, which was actually meant to be the, the key chapter, but um, got sort of lost towards the back. Um, so that's one thing 
uh, one book, Techniques of High Magic, which is now in paperback on um, Amazon, which you could read just to get a taster of the various things. But your question is really difficult because uh, it really depends upon the sort of person as to where you should start them. Uh, I mean, some people, they need to be started by reading fantasy novels simply to get their, expand their vision of the universe a little bit. Um, it's a good point. Some, some people need to be started by learning tarot and learning it properly, you know, so they can actually do a, a proper spread and get an answer. Um, Francis always thought that geomancy was much easier because it's purely mechanical. Uh, I had a slight reservation about that. Tarot is it's a lot more interesting. Of course, with the I Ching, I've got more involved because of its eastern connections, but we don't want to go there. That, that's a long, a very long rabbit hole, the I Ching. Um, yeah, I don't really know. Um, I, I've really stopped teaching um, beginner classes now. I used to mentor a few people, but I'd want them to, to be fairly long way along. Um, so what to read? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that definitely uh, makes sense. I personally, I would, I would recommend any of your many books, uh, but particularly um, Techniques of High Magic was definitely uh, foundational, particularly yeah. when I, when I that, started out. Yeah, that was a starter book for a lot of people. I was, I was very lucky that it got published um, fairly widely and still is widely available. Um, yeah, the Tatva stuff, the Tatva stuff in there is is excellent too. You don't you don't really see a whole lot of working with the Tatvas. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So where to start? Uh, and then you should read a grimoire. You know, whether it's the Key of Solomon or the Goetia or, or whatever, or some of the stuff that Joseph Peterson has done. Um, just to see what the the real thing is. And then you can retreat from that and then do some of the exercises like um, strong visualization used to be a lot of the new agey stuff, but it's not really necessary. You can, you don't need to visualize the spirit. You need to say the right things to it. You need to give it the environment that it's comfortable in. And then you need to talk to it firmly. And talking to it, you just use the, the long and tedious and boring invocations. And here's the tough one. You really should memorize them. Because I have done, uh, I admit, rituals where I had um, a photocopy of the thing attached to a string on my belt, picking it up and reading it and thinking, shit, where am I up to? It's not, it's not going to work. Um, it needs to come fluidly out of the brain. And sometimes you just finish um, embellishing it, and quite often that's a good embellishment. And it needs to come out with authority. The spirit needs to know you know your stuff. Um, they don't talk to somebody that they will perceive to be amateurs. And, of course, everybody starts off it as an amateur. But uh, you need to do a polished performance, and they're more likely to, um, to result. Now, I'm sure you have also asked the question about seeing spirits. Mm -hmm. And in the vast majority of successful cases, you won't actually see the spirit. You'll see some hint um, that it's arrived. And you need to know when it's arrived because otherwise you might be talking to an empty space on the wrong side of the circle. Um, and things like a uh, sudden drop in temperature, even Dennis Wheatley, um, <laughs> this, that. But um, one of the other key ones is a sort of a champagne sparkle in the air. And if you see that, you know they've arrived. Um, uh, and then sometimes uh, strange things like uh, you'll hear a bell, like uh, tinkle, tinkle, but way in the distance. And you know that it's not down the road or anywhere, it's way in the distance and you know that it's arrived because Indian gods, when they arrive, you ring, or when you arrive in a temple, you ring a bell to tell them 
that somebody new has just come in. So Bell is is part of that. I know that some grimoires even suggest a wooden trumpet, but I've never tried that. It just seems a bit pompous. Um, but so sound is important. And uh, what you can see in the air sometimes is important. Um, some people don't see anything, don't feel anything, and then it's good to have a scryer. Um, mm. and, and that's a whole separate um, training. Um, of course, in the, uh, in the long distant past, the recommendation was that a prepubescent child, preferably a girl, should be used. But nowadays, I think if you started using that kind of approach, you'd probably find yourself in difficulties with the local authorities. Uh, even if your intentions were purely spiritual, um, you could get into a lot of trouble. So um, I'm, not, I'm not recommending that, no. But, uh, and then you should develop your own uh, abilities. And learning divination is, divination is not magic, but divination is a pretty good preparation for it because you can start to see the bits that come together to indicate something. And when the spirit comes, there will initially just be bits that come together. And then finally, you will either hear the voice in your head or your scryer will, or if you're really lucky, there will be some audible results. Um, I hope that answers. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, uh, tremendous that is a, a tremendous help for, for a lot of people that are engaging in these things. And uh, one of the questions that I very frequently come across is how do I know, you know, when, when, when something is approached, I'm glad you mentioned that champagne sparkle. That's definitely something that, uh, that I have experienced. Yeah. yeah. So now you know what it was. <laughs> it was the spirit yeah. arriving. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, uh, so I guess any last thoughts before we close up here? Oh, my God, we've been talking for an hour. <laughs> um, yeah, just you've got to take magic seriously. Uh, the, these people who just want to come in for kicks or something, you don't need to take drugs to, to see spirits. Um, uh, and drugs do make it easier. But um, in the long run, it's probably not a, a good idea. Uh, I've tried with and without, and without is, is certainly a lot easier because you can't run an evocation while you're smashed out of your head. Um, <laughs> uh, what else? Um, yeah, read my books. That's an obvious uh, recommendation. Um, <laughs> yep. But uh, and uh, for history, read, read Francis's books. Um, sure, read Crowley, but. Uh, Crowley was too busy um, being self-referential. Like if you read magic in theory and practice for the first time, well, certainly when I did, what is he talking about? Uh, and then if you read Levy to see where he got his chapter headings from, you go, oh, really? Um, Crowley is not a good place to start. Right. Uh, it's a good place to be confused. So, as you probably know, I, I did a, a re-edited version of Crowley's book four, which includes um, magic and theory and practice. And I put in what I had hoped were um, useful footnotes there. But um, the OTO didn't like the fact that I'd taken one of their books uh, as they see them, because they're not their books. And so they convinced Amazon not to sell it in the States. But uh, you can get it at other bookshops, so you don't need to worry about that. But that was an unkind thing to do when, uh, you know, I'm just as interested in, in having Crowley available as they are. Right. It doesn't have to be in a specific form, but it should be available. Hmm. Yeah, uh, those are my final thoughts. Excellent. Uh, I, I just... I truly thank you so much for for joining me today and, and having this conversation uh it's definitely an honor and a privilege to to sit and speak with you um and you know myself and i'm sure many other people are looking forward to uh your future endeavors and um i just i thank you very much oh, thank you 
Okay, there certainly will be future endeavors. <laughs> Excellent. I just can't I just can't tell you what they are at the moment. <laughs>